0: Episode 170 Healthcare Value Guaranteed. Today, I speak with Eric Haberichter, the co founder of Access HealthNet.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking relentlessly seeking value.
0: Value. Equals quality and service divided by price. If a payer is paying for healthcare in an FFS, fee for service way, it's tough, maybe even impossible, to determine whether the healthcare delivered for the cost paid constitutes value. It's hard to know how to collate all those charges into some sort of outcome, but you've been in this business for a while and you know this already here's something that you might not know, how provider aggregators such as Access HealthNet in the Midwest are operationalizing price transparency and paying for episodes of care and making it possible for employers and other payers to buy value at scale. Today, I speak with Eric Haberichter, co-founder of Access HealthNet. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Eric. Happy to be here. Let's just maybe start at the beginning. I know you have some thoughts on our healthcare system as it stands today.
1: Most healthcare is currently delivered under the fee-for-service model. You're paying for every line that's coded and billed. So if we were to look at two medical experiences one that was very efficient, very clean, done very, very well, with no infection, no complication, very efficient delivery, this is going to cost far less than a less efficiently delivered procedure, surgical procedure, where there might be an infection or a readmit or a lengthy surgery due to intrasurgical complications. So in the first case, we would pay less. In the second example, we would pay more. So this is exactly where I say it's not aligned around value. We got a much better outcome and value in the first example than in the second. And yet the provider would get paid more, as would the insurance company collect more and and add more to their basis if that were a, a fully insured product. Things are just extremely misaligned.
0: In an earlier conversation, you said even given all that, we're not circling
1: the drain. So the reason I don't think that we're circling the drain is because there are very strong providers out there that are really taking the reform idea very seriously. But most importantly, I think we have an employer community that's really driving that reform, whether it's through things like direct contracts or bundles, which is what we do, or even if it's just getting the diagnosis right in the first place. You know, recent studies have shown that a large number of surgeries, especially in orthopedics, are, are done needlessly. Many employers are now looking at models that are looking at, you know, pre-screening people for surgical appropriateness, looking at oncology paths, cardiac paths. And as all of those things come together, I think that we do have the ability to show a lot more value. And providers don't necessarily get the short end of the stick in any of this either. You know, getting paid a fair price for quality work is not somehow a less than.
0: That being said, why is it that not Medicare-insured patients cost something like eight times what Medicare would pay for the same service?
1: For many providers, Medicare rates are break-even. You know, rates below that are are often losing them money. Medicaid often is something that providers are losing money when they see a Medicaid patient. They're not efficient enough to work at that level. So somehow those numbers have to get made up and they get made up, frankly, on commercial insurance and in particular with the fully insured.
0: When you say it's it's a break even, for example, do you believe that there is room to improve efficiency that if providers really Frederick Taylor style took a good hard look at what they did, that they could become more efficient? Or do you believe that truly the providers that we're talking about here are as efficient as they're ever going to be?
1: Universally, absolutely, providers are not particularly efficient. Now, that's not true of every provider. There are providers that have adopted lean principles and even Six Sigma type practices and have brought an enormous amount of efficiency to what they do but there's still enormous room improvement for interoperability of medical records, for sharing of medical records. HIPAA, while being extremely important, is a giant obstacle to efficiency. That's becoming less so as more and more companies become high-trust and, and high-tech certified and are able to be more interoperable. But I think that there's a spectrum, of course, of, of success in being efficient. There are systems like uh, the Cleveland Clinic that have taken automation and lean principles to a very high level. And then there are other providers that haven't even started to think about efficiency really at all.
0: And do you think that the non-healthcare delivery aspects of provider organizations contribute significantly to the cost? In other words, it's not necessarily the physician or the nurse being more efficient. It's that there's 100 people in a data billing department or that there's eight people in the office scanning things because they haven't figured out how to take a digital document and transfer a digital document as opposed to taking a digital document, having somebody write it out, then they scan it, and then somebody keys in it again or, you know, things like that.
1: All of those things are true. If you look at the, the supply and demand, clearly there's a, a national shortage of physicians and a severe national shortage of nurses. So if I were a healthcare system and I were looking to improve efficiency, I would do it in those spaces first because that's where I'm going to have the greatest impact um in terms of my bottom line and overall operations the general operation of the hospital is turning towards a lot of automation where artificial intelligence and machine learning is starting to streamline those activities but again that's not really the low hanging fruit from the provider perspective it's the first place that cuts are made but it's the last place i believe in general where uh, efficiencies of scale are being seen as health systems consolidate and we're seeing this all over the country we're not necessarily always seeing efficiency being the outcome of that consolidation. Recently, we had a, a number of systems in our area that consolidated and somehow they managed to have three CEOs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not efficient. And, and that's you know, overhead that is you know, clearly going to add to the overall costs or at the very minimum to the overhead and therefore to the line between, in hospitals, I call it contribution, but between cost and contribution.
0: And one of the things that you said earlier was that employers, for example, and others who are direct contracting really are actually receiving higher value, whereas your typical, I'm going to assume, commercial payer on the other side of the equation is perhaps not achieving that same level. Could you just get into
1: the machinations there? There's really only one reason. If you're a United Healthcare or, or any of the other big providers, of course you have the the power of delivering an enormous amount of lives to that provider, and you're going to have the strongest negotiators. And when it comes to getting a discount, you're probably going to get the best discount. Where direct contracts have you know a level of efficiency that typical payer contracts don't. Number one, when an employer goes to a provider. They're able to work with them in a very different way. They can agree to pay them in a more timely fashion. They can agree to minimal bill review. They can agree to favor a particular provider in exchange for certain pricing. And in most instances, only the very largest providers get that type of favoritism, if we want to call it that, from insurance companies. So if I were an employer in a mid-sized market and I had a very large system and a smaller system, I could potentially go to that smaller system, give them some sort of favorable treatment and get a rate uh, that would be much lower, especially if I'm willing to pay them in a timely fashion. This is where the idea of bundles or episodes of care comes in because it kind of changes what you're paying for. So we get out of that fee-for-service model and into more of kind of an episodes of care or fixed rate model. Most of the money, I think, that is you know, kind of wasted in healthcare. it's not that we're doing, certainly some is spent on care that is unnecessary. There's no question that that happens. And fraud and abuse, in particular in government programs, is just rampant. Insurance companies are much better at looking for fraud than what the government currently is. But a lot of it has to do with all of the people that touch your bill. So if you can eliminate three or four of those bill touches, often those are repricers, which if they reduce the bill by $100, keep $25 to $35 of that for themselves for that service. If we can reduce those people and eliminate them from the delivery chain to where you have the person purchasing and the person selling with a single direct connection, you're able, again, able to really streamline payment and, and capture you know, something like $0.35 cents on the dollar more for the provider.
0: In the markets where this functions, it would seem to me that it would be necessary that there is more than one system of care. Because otherwise, what incentive would that one dominant player have to enter in contracts like this?
1: Well, I would agree with you that competition is going to you know, drive any type of a free market solution more quickly. But there's also top-down pressure from the buyers. You know, If I'm a large system, and I control the majority of a, of a major market or of ma- many major markets. The biggest driver for price control is going to be the employers who are asking for you know better prices. When companies like Walmart or Target or you know these are companies that are actively doing these things go out and demand you know better prices from provider groups, they get them because again, like an insurance company, they have a lot of sway. The other idea that I think is very important to understand is when you get into a direct contract and you're agreeing to, you know, pay the contracted rate, the provider is not out chasing, you know, those dollars from other people. Collections agencies, attorneys, these all cost a tremendous amount of money for the provider as well and cut on their margin. So all of those things, you know, come to play even with a large provider that may have a somewhat monopolistic hold over a market.
0: I was just reading something the other day uh, however, about a health system who is making more money servicing debt than they were providing healthcare services, which I found just appalling.
1: It's hard to believe that it's come to that, <laughs> but I guess I have to believe it. But it's sad, you know, it, it, when you're, you're helping, you're saving people's lives, you're performing heart surgeries, back surgeries, treating cancer patients. And at the same point in time, collecting debt or, or being a credit card is a better business doesn't make sense.
0: So let's talk about, let's just say, as you mentioned, a middle market employer. How does this whole thing begin? So I'm a middle market. So I'm not a Walmart or a Target. I'm downstream. And I take a good hard look at my healthcare costs and realize that, you know, I can't give my employees raises because their entire raise is being subsumed by the increase of the dollars that I'm expending on medical coverage. What do I do? You know, do I call up someone at the local health system and and try to take a meeting? Or does it start from the provider side? Is it a provider reaching out?
1: How does this typically initiate? As an employer, I think you could reach out as a middle market provider, somebody with, you know, say three, four, five thousand employees or more, I think you could reach out to a local provider and try to strike a deal. I'm not certain that that's the right method because most manufacturers or other employers, you know, whether they're retailers, whatever, healthcare is not their business. And you're, you're kind of going into I going to call it the lion's den as a non-healthcare worker or a non-insurance person when you go start negotiating with a healthcare organization. You know, we have so many layers in our business. That it's very easy for us to hide the money, so to say, through accounting, etc. Even though you might be giving a very good faith deal, the, the system is kind of stacked against that. So if I were to give any advice to a, a middle market or even really any employer that wants to make change, is I think the first thing you have to do is accept that change starts, number one, with you as the employer, And you have to look at what benefits you're providing, how you're providing them, where you're buying them, and who you're buying them from. If you can't get claims detail that shows you exactly, as a self-funded, exactly what I'm paying for every single thing, maybe you're in the wrong PPO. Maybe you should be working with someone who's going to show you uh, what things really cost. If you're not sharing the news about shopping with your employees and the importance of seeking value, again, that's kind of on you. And if your benefits broker or or advisor is not helping you to communicate the importance of consumerism, looking for alternative sources for you and trying to help you with things like direct contracting, potentially finding lower cost stop loss coverage, you know, or other models that are going to give control to the employer and reduce the influence of, you know, I'll, I'll call it providers that are over treaters you know, it's hard to complain about, you know, a lack of results when you haven't really you know taken those steps.
0: One of the things that you just said is that it's up to the provider to take the first step. You know, I was talking to Ross Bella in a recent interview. And one of the things that he said, if there are two provider organizations dominating a market, one of those two is thinking about doing direct contracting. And the first provider system that does is going to be the one that dominates that and has an implicit perception of value. Because why would you direct contract and get paid for performance, basically, if you didn't trust that you would be able to deliver that kind of quality? So he said the first mover advantage is big.
1: I would agree that first mover is big. And I would suggest that there's what Ross said than that. It's not just that he who, you know, kind of jumps first wins. Probably he who jumps first is capable and understands that they can make money in, in a, we'll call it a capitated or fixed reimbursement model. When we talk about direct contracts, and I'll be a little specific to what we do, we we're talking about episodes of care at a fixed rate. So, And Ross's company that does transparency is looking at episodes of care as well. So if we were looking at, say, the cost of like a hip replacement surgery, what we're looking at is the total cost of delivery of the episode of care from you know the workup to discharge and, and some of the post-treatment. So if I'm a provider that has very strong cost controls, that has excellent surgeons and is using wholesale direct sourcing all of my uh, DME, my implanted devices, has a good contract with my anesthesiology group and has a very low infection rate, I can offer that total hip replacement at a price that is substantially lower than someone who is a, a less quality actor. Even within my own system, I can streamline around efficiency. You know, potentially I offer that bundle at an ambulatory surgical facility versus at the hospital. That's going to be more efficient. And if I'm going to be proactive as the provider, and find ways to deliver you know, quality, which is the most important element of value, not just the price. That's going to give me a huge advantage because, A, I'm thinking about that efficiency. B, I'm going out to the employer market and saying, I want to be part of the solution. So I do think that's a, a huge competitive advantage.
0: Speaking from the provider standpoint, what would a provider need to do if they decided that, they were thinking to themselves, hey, I'm really good at, you know, hip replacements. Like we have a whole unit that that's what they do. We do a lot of them. We're, we're good like that. Or they really started to think about that first mover advantage. Like how would a provider, what advice do you have? What steps does a provider need to take in order to determine whether doing direct contracting is right for them? You know, that this is going to be successful or, you know, maybe they need to take three steps back and fix some stuff. Like what are the preliminary goings on here?
1: Well, I think as a provider, the first thing is to look at, you know, your total care path and and delivery of care and looking at each of the elements and seeing, are we doing the elements well? Identifying, you know, if there is a weak link, not to pick on anesthesiologists, but I'll just say that when you go to episodes of care, there are many markets where anesthesia has become very consolidated. And because of it, they've been able to set reimbursement very high for themselves. So you may have a very efficient surgeon that's able to uh, do things for a fair price, a very clean and capable ambulatory surgical center with a fantastic staff that once again is able to deliver a high quality product at a a reasonable price. But if you have an anesthesia group that's charging three times the national average, it's going to be very difficult to compete on value. So I think that would be the first step is looking at each of the elements of the the care path and making certain that you have, you know, the right players in those areas and also looking at the ability to consistently deliver quality. It's difficult for a provider to take a risk position, which offering fixed case rates is a minor risk position, but it's difficult for them to take risk if they don't have those risks kind of covered. They could charge more and that would cover the risk, but that would make them less competitive in the market. What I would also suggest is that we're one company that that works with episodes of care and bundles, and we've defined over a thousand uh, different episodes of care nationally, but there are several others in the space that I think, you know, can help with that. And also, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are a number of very high quality facilities offering these episodes of care. They've kind of got it figured out. They're profitable. You know, look at what others are doing and see if you can't imitate and then improve upon that.
0: So we've got take a look at each element of the care path, make sure you can consistently deliver quality, and then lastly, define the episodes of care. Did I get that right?
1: That's that's exactly right. Steps
0: one, two, and three. All right. I got some questions about number two, <laughs> this quantifying the risk. One of the reasons, for example, that evidence-based medicine is such a potentially loaded term, but difficult to achieve, is because of the lack of feedback loop. So if we're talking about quantifying the risk and ensuring that our outcomes are consistently high quality, how is that best done in an environment where sometimes, you know, patient leaves the facility and nobody knows what happened to them?
1: But If we're looking at kind of the elements of risk that a provider would take in offering episodes of care, I think the first thing you have to look at is what is our historical experience. So, and I wouldn't, as a provider, offer you know something that we just invented or we just started doing. You know, that hip surgery. If we've done a thousand hip surgeries in the last five years, we have a pretty good idea uh, internally, at least, of what our infection rates are, how long the surgery takes, what the cost to deliver that service is, and who my top performers within my organization are. If I focus my efforts on my top performers. And that historical experience, I should be able to come up with a number that makes sense for, we'll say, 95% of patients. And then when, when you're looking at any type of, uh, you know, kind of episodes of care type scenario, I think it's extremely important that you're working under a, a construct that would allow you to take that small number of patients that are part of the working age population that really have so many comorbidities that you can't see them under an episode of care. I'll, going back to that hip surgery, if somebody had a bone disease that meant that they had very fragile bones, and there are a number of them, I would not want to accept that patient for a very low fixed rate uh, bundle because I know that the surgery is going to take longer. I know there are going to be complications, and I know that that person probably, quite frankly, needs to be seen by a number of specialists uh, as well as the orthopedist. So you, there really should be the ability to have some form of selection criteria for the patients as well. And then the last thing I think that you asked had to do with assessing kind of what the, the level of risk is in terms of how they set their pricing. And, I, and again, I think you have to add, uh, you know, kind of a margin in for that variability. And, you know, smart companies that that are doing episodes of care have a pretty good idea nationally what that risk corridor is.
0: Let me ask you, the question I just asked earlier about employers, take the flip side of that. So say I'm a provider and I have gone through these three steps and I'm pretty confident that I'm in a good spot. What do I do in order to direct contracts? Do I approach local employers? Do I contact a company like Access Health Net? You know, are you guys well known in the marketplace that you're getting solicited by providers who want to go this way? I mean, how does that work?
1: So I'll answer the question first, is, comes first as a provider. First, I mean, I would, yes, if I was a large provider with very good quality controls and and a strong, I guess I'll call it community presence, or, or at the very least, a very strong positive image in the community, you know, I would consider going to large employers and asking to strike a direct deal. Now, of course, running a company that does this for them and and administers the claims and makes it all very easy, I'd love it if they called us. And we do get calls from providers in the Midwest every day. We've really gotten, you know, to be well known in our market, which is really the Great Lakes. Uh, We are a national product and we have providers in 49 states, but I'm not getting calls from Alaska.
0: (laughs) When you approach an employer... Then you're speaking with these and we can drill down into the details in a moment, but just to kind of get the playing field figured out. And anyway, I have this question I really want to ask you. So say I'm a a provider and I'm thinking that I want to make myself attractive for local employers, or maybe I don't even need to. You know, employers need a lot of stuff. They start to be worried about things that are contributing to the cost of chronic care management, for example. So they might want diabetes education or they might want to have somebody come in and talk about any number of topics or run programs for those employees for any number of different reasons. Is it really important that the provider kind of put together this sort of programming in advance as well? Or is it more just like, okay, this is the financial arrangement that we're going to have?
1: I have two completely dis- discreet answers to that question. From an employer's perspective, the question is, do I want to go with an integrated health system or do I want to own a portion of the delivery model myself so I control the financial and and, and have a fiduciary uh, responsibility of the provider aligned with me first, not a system? So if I'm an employer and I want to take the highest level of control, I would likely work with a worksite nurse site, clinical provider or a direct primary care practice, you know, to give my employees a primary care option that would want to help me save money and help my members achieve the lowest possible costs. That's a very common solution. And that's a solution that gives the employer the greatest level of control. That would be you know, the first answer. Um, they can also work with advocacy groups, you know, health advocate type folks that are going to give their membership, you know, all of the you know, questions and answer time that they need, checking in on folks with chronic diseases. And, and many of these companies are able to do, you know, population health management as well and, and chronic disease health management as well as to providing primary care. Uh, whether it's through advocacy or physician services. Now, if I were a system provider and I was looking to attract that type of business, I would absolutely be looking at total population health as something that, as a system, I have the greatest ability to provide. That might be an advantage that a large system would have in terms of delivering directly contracted services uh, to an employer for a wide range of services. Again, especially that chronic disease management. Can that be diabetes? Is that well managed by a nurse at work or a nurse at a hospital? You know, it's a horse of potentially, but certainly providers need to focus on that as part of the total delivery because they can see savings for the employer by managing the chronically ill and keeping them on a, a treatment path without necessarily reducing rates.
0: Let me ask you about how this whole paradigm shift toward episodes of care, bundles, or whatever you want to call them, is coming to be. We've been very focused on employers right now sort of driving this change, but Medicare is also doing a number of demonstration projects to this end. Is their efforts in this area a driving force that employers are capitalizing on? Or, you know, like, who's the cart and who's the horse? (laughs)
1: The idea of Medicare paying by episodes of care is not new at all. It's just how they classify the episodes of care that's changed. Medicare has used something called DRGs or diagnosis-related groupings to pay for care for forever. And there's nothing new there. And it's not something that providers are you know, super pumped about. And the reason they're not is because DRGs spread out over an enormously long period of time. And they run into scenarios where you asked a question before, what if the patient leaves the hospital and something happens? In the case of a a Medicare DRG, that hospital is still required to treat that patient under the original reimbursement model, despite the fact that they have no causative effect on, on that outcome. Providers, again, are not necessarily super pumped about DRGs. Medicare has now a second iteration, and there might have been a third that I'm not aware of, brought out some bundles. and They brought out bundles a few years ago for episodes of care. And they were not crazy popular. Most of the hospitals that, that uh, were participating pulled back. And now they've relaunched the initiative recently with a shorter list of what I would call more kind of the types of bundles that employers are thinking about. The jury is still out on whether that's going to be a driving force or not. It's still based on very long episodes of care and a much wider provider risk corridor than what most providers are, are willing to do at a very low price, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't think that looking to the government for healthcare innovation as an employer is, is a particularly sound methodology as a whole, however.
0: Just as kind of a sidebar, Elizabeth Rosenthal in her recent book, there's a whole chapter on DRGs, how they actually have inadvertently driven up prices So if anyone is so inclined, I would get that book and read that chapter. Let's talk about provider aggregators. Can you define that term?
1: That's kind of what we call ourselves, (laughs) is a, a provider contract aggregator. You know, we're not a network in the typical way that a PPO goes out and builds a network that covers everything from, you know, band-aids to, you know, lung replacements. You know, we're focused on on very specific things. So as a provider aggregator, what we're doing is, is we're going out and making a very direct technical connection uh, contractually between providers and the payers. So we're not an, an insurance product or a network we're really just a, a free market purchasing solution that supplements, you know, what other people are doing. And there are other people, you know, or other businesses getting into this space, you know, where they're thinking more about I guess I'll say commoditizing certain aspects of healthcare. It's kind of the retailization of service. We don't ever want to commoditize physicians and and nurses, but really everything else in healthcare, you know, not only can but should be commoditized why should a hospital room be treated any different than a hotel room yes there might be a less comfortable but fancier bed sure there's medical equipment you know but an iv pump and a, a mini bar both have a fixed cost and putting in and delivering so i think when you look at what an aggregator does is they're they're really trying to find a, a direct connection through contractual means that is going to you know allow for you know i guess the retailization of healthcare
0: if I'm an employer, I would sign up with you and then you would say, OK, well, you know, in your market, I'm making stuff up right now, Eric. In your market, here's what a night in the hospital costs. So you can choose between these hospitals, but this one's much more than that one, for example, or the quintessential MRI example as well, I'm sure, is on the list. But you had said you have like thousands of episodes of, of care.
1: It's easier if we just if we just stick with that same example again of the hip surgery, right? Mm-hmm. Because everyone knows about a hip surgery. I'll know somebody who's had one. What businesses like ours do, and again, we're not the only one, is I would have contracts with many, many providers to offer that hip surgery. We're going to offer all of those choices to the employer through a web-based solution and, and through partnerships with all the different people that help deliver care uh, whether it's uh, advocates or worksite clinics or other networks, all different ways to to get the bundles out there. But ultimately, the employer, through hopefully some sort of intermediary, an advocate, a doctor, or even just the website, is able to show, you know, you, can, you have a choice of going to any of these five providers for that hip surgery. And in the case of our product, typically we're able to achieve prices that are low enough that the employer actually waives the employee's out-of-pocket amounts. They save $10,000 on the hip surgery by purchasing it as an episode of care and agreeing to pay in full and rapidly. And therefore, they're able to save, pass some of that savings. We'll save $3,500, the employee's pocket, out-of-pocket amount to the employee and the employer still saves you know a, a good amount of money. So that's really you know how it works macroscopically. We're not looking at the individual elements like how much it costs to stay overnight but what the total episode of care is it's, it's far too difficult to explain to you know an employee or you know a general you know staff member at any company about all the different individual elements mattering. So we're trying to make it much more macroscopic and, again, something that people can really look at and shop for versus something that's just too complex and they can't. And the other thing I should say is that I don't personally believe that many consumers are ready to go online and buy a hip surgery. So it's really important that the employer, in any type of a direct contract relationship, is is going to make certain that there is very clear uh, education around that. But equally or more importantly, that they have folks to help their employees shop. And the best person to help someone shop for, for healthcare is, in my mind, a, a doctor, your primary care doctor.
0: Talk about Access HealthNet. Where can people go for more information and who should contact you?
1: They can just go to uh, accesshealthnet.com. And providers, employers, networks, uh, whoever uh, is interested, you know, the stakeholders uh, would like any of them to call us. Now, we uh, really don't sell directly to employers. We would uh, refer them to you know, one of our distributors and, and work that channel.
0: I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It is such a great pleasure to have another Richter, well, Haba Richter, uh, on the show today.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure as well.